No doubt some of you have already noticed the sparsity of the notes. I have an explanation. Thursday is the day normally I devote to study and anticipation for the weekend for Friday night. I have to cram a lot in just a very short space of time. And so Thursday, as I was home uh, studying and reading and thinking and preparing, uh, knowing that we were going to be taking communion as a congregation the first weekend of the month, uh, wanting to kind of bridge, we've been talking about living supernaturally and, and bring a message of, that would tie in communion. Uh, it was just, just wasn't happening. And uh, when you do this week after week after week after week, uh, you know, sometimes it, sometimes it just clicks. Messages come, you know, and uh, I find it, if I can just get a title, or if I can get an opening thought or opening theme, opening statement, then it just begins to come and flow and fit in and wonderful. Nothing Thursday. I was just, and I was starting to panic. And a friend of mine called and he had Dodger tickets. So three o'clock, I went to the Dodger game, and I knew, I knew, I knew at the Dodger game, God would inspire me. I had three Dodger dogs. First thing you got to have when you go to Dodger Stadium, you got to get a Dodger dog. Dodgers won. I was inspired. Got home. It was still early. It was still light, actually. I was thinking, what am I going to preach on? I thought, oh, I'll just go to bed. <laughs> Woke up Friday morning. Nothing. Came to the office. My secretary, Debbie, says, uh, do you have your notes? Because I have to turn in my notes and get turned in an outline. She has to type it up and get it ready for the bulletin. I said, I have nothing. <laughs> now, Debbie, Debbie just is so encouraging. She said to me, she says, it's going to be good. <laughs> it's like my wife. My wife always encourages me that way. So I didn't have anything. I went home, got home in the afternoon and sitting at my desk thinking, nothing. Now I'm starting to get a little panicky. And I am really praying big time now. God! Your servant needs a word here. <laughs> and it was probably about, I don't know, about 4.30. I'm just getting close. Because i got to be here at 5.30. No, 6.30. I'd be at 6.30. I get three words. And so, when, by the way, when Debbie asked me, what, what should we do? I said, I don't know, just put something about communion. So she, I don't know what she put the title for the notes. What does it say? Notes on communion. Notes on communion. Yeah, okay, good. So we have three words on communion. Actually, three, three thoughts that God he brought to me. Boom, 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 right in a row. And they, they just are things that, that we already know. I'm not going to tell you anything you don't already know, most of you. 
but there are things that I think are well worth rehearsing, and they do dovetail with uh, communion. Now, remember, communion is, is a memorial meal. We are, we are commanded to come to the Lord's table. We are commanded uh, to remember Him and remember His sacrifice. And so when, when we, in just a little bit, uh, take this piece of matzah and we take this little cup of grape juice, and incidentally, we're going to do it a little differently. Obviously, the table is in front this morning, and I'll talk to you about that in a minute. We take these elements. We're going to, I want us to focus on three things this morning. And those are three things I want to tell you. So, and incidentally, when we take communion, I'm going to, I'm going to rehearse this again with you, but I, but I want to do this first of all. We're going to uh, not just pass the trays as we have for such a long time. We're going to come forward to, to the table here. And this group over here, you have your own little table. Aren't you excited? And you guys over here have your own little table, all right, this whole section. Now, this section here, this whole section here, when we, when we start taking communion, I want you all to exit this way and come down this aisle, okay, and come behind the table. You with me? And go all the way back around so that you can come back to your seat if you wish, or you can stop along the wall someplace and gather. Now, this section, same thing. I want you guys to exit that side and then come down the back side. Now, there's room for you guys to crisscross. There's room right back here. We moved away from the, away from the, uh, the platform. Now, these two major sections, you come down these aisles, and you come down the front, and then go back down the center aisle. Okay? So we'll rehearse that again uh, just before we do that. I just want to let you know we're going to do a little bit differently this morning. Yeah, I should have a diagram up there. Yeah, we're going down. Uh, we're all rocket scientists. We can remember these things. All right, let me talk to you about these three things in anticipation of our time of communion this morning. How many of you have, have, a, have a, a, a sense, an awareness that you fall short? <laughs> uh, you, you're aware of the performance gap. This is where, you know, we ought to be, we want to be, this is where we are, and there's this big gap in between, right? And how many have felt like either because you've done something you shouldn't have done or you haven't done something that you should have done that somehow maybe God isn't happy with you? You've had that feeling, that sense. You go, oh, God's not, God. Maybe, maybe it's not just God's not happy. Maybe God's actually mad at you. Anybody ever thought that? You know, God, God's mad at me. Well, the first thing that I believe that God wants to remind us of, because of what this table represents, because of what this little piece of matzah and this cup of juice represents, because of what Jesus has done on that cross, God is not mad at you. And God will never, ever, if you're a Christian, if you're born again, God will never, ever again be angry at you. 
Isn't that glorious? Now, for some, that's really hard to believe. For some, that's hard to grasp. Because we we are, are trapped, in a, in a sense, in a performance mentality, are we not? We are used to, every single day of our life, as we live our life out in the world, we are constantly performing for other people, aren't we? To get them to accept us, to like us, to pay us, to whatever. We're jumping through somebody's hoops. And if the truth be known, most of the time we are pretending, we're acting, we're not really have the freedom or feel the freedom to, to kind of just be ourselves. Can anybody relate to that? A few of us. Good. Well, I, you know, I deal with this every day myself. And because we're in this, in this gap, we feel like if we don't perform properly, people aren't going to like us. And we teach our kids that, don't we? If you're not performing, I'm not going to be happy with you. I'm mad at you. Bad little girl, bad little boy. Or some such kind of sin. We communicate as parents. We don't mean to, but we do. And so we project that same kind of dynamic onto God. That if we're not performing, well, how could God possibly like me? How could He possibly be happy with me? Well, it's not based on what I do or don't do. His love, His favor, His blessing is not based, has nothing to do with what I do or don't do. It has everything to do with what Christ has done. Isn't that great? Why don't you see Romans chapter 8, verse 1? This glorious verse, this is what the Apostle Paul reminds us of. This is part of the good news. <laughs> he says, Now, there is only a little bit of condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I hear protesting. How much condemnation? None. None. No condemnation. None. Not one little tiny bit for those who are in Christ. If you're a Christian, all of your sins have been dealt with. Where were they dealt with? At the cross. cross. Past, present, future sins. They've all been been punished. Jesus said, it is finished. Among other things, that's what he means. The work is done. It's as if you have to go and take an exam. You have to get, you have to get an A plus on the exam. You have to, everything depends on that. Your whole life, your whole future, your whole existence depends on you getting that A+. And you know that you can't get the A+. Jesus takes the exam for you. He gets the A+, for you. It goes on your credit card. It goes on your report card. And it's all legal. Isn't that great? It goes credited to your account. A plus. Next to your name. Yes, your name. My name. Now, 
we tend to look at ourselves as God looks at us, right? No, we look at ourselves as we look at each other. Wretch. (laughs) Bummer. Sinner. God doesn't look at us that way. How does he look at us? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. How does he look at us? He looks at us as he looks at Jesus. We bear the righteousness of Christ. God's not stupid. He knows that we sin. He knows that we fall short. But he doesn't see us as we see ourselves. We see our own imperfect human righteousness. We see our failures. Those things glare in our face, do they not? And we don't mind holding other people's failures up to them either, do we? But God doesn't focus on that. He sees us as we will be. He sees us through the righteousness of Christ. Why? Because He made His own Son, who knew no sin, who had no sin, to become sin for us. So that we might become what? The righteousness of God. There's a swap. Here's Jesus. Here's me. God takes my sin, puts it on Him. He takes His righteousness, puts it on me. What a deal. What a deal. And it's all by faith. It's all by faith. So I'm here to tell you, no matter what you do, no matter what you don't do, if you are a believer, God will never be angry with you again. Because he poured out all of his anger, all of his wrath on your sin, on his son, on that cross 2,000 years ago. You say, but yeah, but what, what, what about when I do stuff I'm not supposed to do? God disciplines those he loves. Now, we all need discipline, right? We all need training. Discipline, discipline does not have its eye toward the past. It has its eye toward the future. Punishment has its eye toward the past. As my son was growing up, when he would go off the path, I would discipline him to remind him how he needed to go. I would remind him, now do you remember how you should go? Always with I, oh yes, I remember how I should go. Try to make the distinction between punishment and discipline. Discipline is for training. It's to move us forward. God will discipline us. He knows we need it. But he's not going to ever, ever be angry with us. Because he's already punished all of our sins on the cross. That's great news. That is absolutely great news. This is called the grace of God. The grace of God. Now, I have a question. Can you abuse the grace of God? Can you abuse it? Do we abuse it? And is God mad at us for it? No. No, he's not. Can you imagine that? Now, if you were gracious to somebody, I mean exceedingly gracious to somebody, and they took advantage in terms of abusing that grace, 
Would that tighten your jaw? Would you be mad at him for it? Yeah. So we would see naturally, we would think that God would be mad at us for abusing his grace. No. No. Does that give us license to abuse his grace? No. You see, because when you understand grace, and when you embrace grace, and when grace has embraced you, it only serves to draw you to the person. And unless you have a conscience that is seared, you will not abuse that grace. Now, all of us have somebody in our life, aside from God, somebody in our life who knows us, who understands us, warts and all, and still loves us and accepts us. Isn't that true? That classic person is none other than mom, for the most part. There were some people over here this morning at the 8 o'clock service that not my mom. <laughs> For the most part, okay, most of us, most of us have, have mothers who, they know us, they know us, they know us, they know we do stupid, foolish things, and, uh, and yet, you know, we're still their baby. No matter what we do, they'll, they say, I'll always love you, I'll always accept you. And that boggles our mind. We can't hardly even... Why? How, how can you do that? Because we don't really understand grace. And yet that's the very grace of God. No matter what we do, because we've, we've believed in Jesus, because we've trusted in Jesus, though we may aspire to excellence and surely fall short, He doesn't reject us and He doesn't get mad at us when we fail. He knows we are but dust. But it's Him working in us who is going to bring about the fullness of our salvation. You can't save yourself. You can't make yourself holy. It's God who does it. So having said all that, it doesn't give us freedom and doesn't give us license to go do whatever we choose and to say, well, God's going to forgive me. Yes, He will. If you confess your sin, you repent, He's faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. But I'd have a serious question if you deliberately went off and abused His grace, if in fact you were saved in the first place. So He wants us to know as we come to this table that, yes, we're not worthy. We don't have anything to offer. but that we're forgiven. And we can come and remind ourselves. We need to remind ourselves. We need to remind ourselves again and again and again. Because we go off in our legalistic trip, don't we? We go off and we get back in our performance mode. Perform, perform, perform. Who of us, who of us hasn't fallen short and we, we want to be able to read our Bible every day, right? Pray every day, have a devotional time every day. Who of us hasn't fallen short? Except Ken. <laughs> Ken Bankhead reads his Bible and prays every day faithfully. And when you fall short, you feel, oh, I failed. And then it goes one day, two days, three days. Could go even four days. Has that ever happened, Ken? Four days? Yeah. 
And then we're kind of like, oh, man, how could God, how could God, God's so, man, he's bummed with me. No, he's not. No, he's not. He wants us, he wants us to be free from our human legalistic mentality. He wants us to be able to embrace him. He wants us to see him as a gracious and loving father. Not that we have to read our Bible as some religious activity to get some quota in. But that His grace draws us to Him, draws us to Him, draws us to Him, draws us to Him. That's the first thing. The second thing is that, and many of you are aware of this, the Bible uses a number of metaphors or ways to describe the church. And one that the New Testament uses the Apostle Paul is found of, found, uh, uh, fond of using, he calls the church a body, or likens it to a body, doesn't he? We are the body of Christ. We are the body of Christ. And as such, we have a role to play. We have a function to play. I want you to look with me at Luke's Luke's Gospel, chapter 4. Now, the, the context of this passage, verses 18 and 19, the context is Jesus has, has grown up now, and he's just come through 40 days of, of fasting and being tested in the wilderness. He's undergone his baptism, and now he's launching his public ministry. And the first place he goes is up to the district of Galilee, and he begins his ministry up in Galilee, and now he is in Nazareth. That's his hometown. He goes to the synagogue, as was his habit every Sabbath, to worship publicly. He went to the synagogue, and as a visiting member of the community and a rabbi, he was handed the scroll, and it was the scroll of Isaiah. And he he unrolled the scroll, and he unrolled it to Isaiah chapter 61, and he reads a particular passage. And then he applies the passage to himself. It's a messianic passage. Now, we won't read that, but later on he says, uh, today this this, this, uh, scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So he says it refers to me. But I want to focus on the, on the passage that he reads. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight to the blind, to release the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. With that, he rolls the scroll back up, hands it to the attendant, says, Today, the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, what is he saying? He's saying, this is my mission. This is what I'm here for. My, I'm here, now this is critical, I'm here to bring about reconciliation and healing. I'm here to bring about reconciliation and healing. Isn't that what that refers to? Setting people free? Reconciling them? Seeing healing happen in their life? Now, if that's Jesus' identification of his mission and his ministry, 
And now we, the church, pick up his ministry. What is our role? Same thing. The body of Christ, this is our ministry. We are about preaching good news to the poor, are we not? Do people need to hear good news? Are there people in your life that need to hear good news? That God loves them? That they matter to God? He has a plan for their life? He wants to embrace them? He wants to save them from hell? He wants them to live with Him for eternity? He wants to give them a brand new life here? Is that good news? Do we know people who need to hear that? Yeah. Okay. Has He sent us to proclaim freedom for the prisoners? Are people in prison? I mean, and, and not just literal physical prisons, but they are imprisoned in their own life, imprisoned by depression, self-pity, anxiety, fear, and on and on and on. Can we proclaim freedom for those prisoners? Yes. How about recovery of sight for the blind? Can we help blind people see? Sure. Are there people who are oppressed that need to be released? Big time. Big time. Not just by the use of mood elevators and drugs, but by prayer and the love and the power of God through His church, embracing people, reconciling them to God. They can be set free from oppression. And we get to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. We get to proclaim blessings on people. I mean, think about this. The very words, God bless you, spoken by a Christian to another person. God bless you. You are pronouncing the year of the Lord's favor. You are pronouncing God's blessings and favor in that person's life. Do you believe that? By faith, they ought to begin to experience something in their life because you have pronounced blessing on them. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. It's in this passage that the Apostle Paul describes the church and uses that metaphor of a body. He says the body is a unit. Though it is made up of many parts, and though all its parts are many, they form one body. So this body is a unit made up of lots of different parts. But all the parts form one unit. They're all different, they're distinct, they have different roles, but they all function together. They're all critically important. He says, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether you were <coughs> excuse me, Jewish or Gentile, whether you were slave or free, whether you were male or female, it didn't matter. The distinctions that we've made historically that have divided people are no longer holding. So wherever you've come from, whoever you are, you've been baptized by the one Spirit. We were given all to drink of the one Spirit. We've been made one part of one body. Isn't that great? God has given us a great, great opportunity to be part of His family, part of His body, part of the church. Now, I want you to look at uh, Ephesians chapter 2. Turn to Ephesians. We're going to look at it. It's a little longer passage. It's uh, ten verses I want us to read together. Verses 1 through 10. See, I, 
I always have to include a passage to read. Because with our technology and our ability to flash verses on the screen, we get lazy. So I want to make sure you always bring your Bible, because you always depend that I'm going to have you turn someplace and read a passage with me, okay? See, when you prepare a sermon, you always have to do that, too. You have to think, now see, I want them to read, too, so where are we going to go to read? All right, Ephesians chapter 2, read with me verses 1 through 10. And I, I, the whole, this whole section, is going to, we're going to focus on verse 10, but it's important that you understand the background. He says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. We were what? Dead in our transgressions and sins. It means we were dead to God. We were, we were perishing. In which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, craving or gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. That's a very important statement he makes. We were by nature objects of wrath. That means that we... We are conceived sinners. We were brought into this world. We were sinners. Paul says in another place in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, that when Adam sinned, we all sinned with him. So we're born headed for hell. We're born headed for hell. We're by nature objects of wrath. But he goes on and he says... Verse 4, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. So here I am, I'm God's enemy, I'm dead in my sins, I could care less about God, but God does a work in my life to make me alive with Christ. That's glorious. It's not anything I did. I didn't deserve it, I didn't earn it. I can't pay for it. It's God's mercy and His grace to me. He made me alive with Christ. He put me in Christ. And He says, It is by grace you have been saved. God's grace. He is gracious. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Do you know that we're already seated in heaven? It's a done deal. It just remains for us to to live out the reality of our destiny. We're already seated in heavenly realms. And he goes on and he says, in order that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in His kindness to us, again, in Christ Jesus For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves. It is a gift of God. Not of works that no one can boast. No one can say, I deserved it. I earned it. I worked hard. God saved me because I'm such a good person. Nope. When you were dead in your sins and dead in your transgressions, He made you alive with Christ. He took mercy on you. I tell you, every day, I am so thankful. God, you have had mercy on me. Thank you for your mercy to my life. You have saved me. 
Now, the, the, the question is, why have you saved me? I don't care why you saved me. It has nothing to do with me. It's because he's just chosen to save me. For his own reasons and his own purpose. Now, here's verse 10. For we are God's workmanship. Where whose workmanship? God's workmanship. He fashioned us. He saved us. He's transforming us. We are created in Christ Jesus to do what? Good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, I want to suggest to you the good works that He has created in advance for us to do are the works that have to do with reconciliation and healing. That have to do with that passage in Luke chapter 4. You say, well, I have the gift of mercy. Good. You want to use it to bring mercy into people's lives. I have the gift of helps. Wonderful. Help people become reconciled. I have the gift of prophecy. Great. Use it. But understand that the goal is to bring about reconciliation and healing. God wants all men to be reconciled to Him. He's given the church the great role and the great privilege to proclaim these things. He wants us reconciled with ourselves. Uh, how many times have you looked at yourself in the mirror and said, I don't like myself? Or you felt, you felt out of sorts, frustrated, separated, if you will. God wants to bring about this, your own internal healing. And, and He also wants to bring reconciliation between you and other people. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Just back a few pages. Paul says in verse 14, For Christ's love compels us. Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, meaning that he died for us, and therefore all died. We died with him, if you're a Christian. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So, if this is true, he says, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Do we typically regard each other from a worldly point of view? How should we regard each other? From a heavenly point of view. If you were... Dolores, if you were to see Sandra as she will be in glory, if she would appear to you today as she would in glory, you would fall down and worship. Do you know that? What I'm suggesting is, we just, but we just look at Sandra like she is. We regard her from a worldly point of view. We need to regard each other from a heavenly perspective, not from a worldly perspective. And when we do, that, that allows us now to begin to implement this ministry of reconciliation because we see how important it is. Let's read on. So as we don't regard each other any longer from a worldly point of view, 
he says, though once we regarded Christ in this way, see him differently. Verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Do we regard each other as new creations? You're a new person. I believe the best about you. I hope the best about you. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is God reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. That's our message. Be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. Because we see, we see the hope. We see the potential. We see what God is doing in people's lives. We know what can be had. We have a great ministry. We're a community of people. Where the first call, the first call is not revenge. It's not getting even. It's not hardening our hearts. It's not looking through the Bible for a loophole to get out of a situation. The first call is always, always forgiveness and reconciliation, isn't it? It's always forgiveness and reconciliation. But unless you have embraced God's grace to you, to whom much is given, much is required. How can I not forgive? How can I not reconcile when God has forgiven me and reconciled me to Him? How can I do any less with you? This is the one critical thing that marks us as Christians. We are a reconciling and healing community. There are going to be people in your life, if not today, they'll be there tomorrow, I promise you, that will cause you to tighten your jaw. There are going to be people who betray you, lie to you, deceive you, use you, wrong you. And everything in you is get even, reject them, punch their lights out, do something. But see, we don't regard people from a worldly point of view anymore. We don't function naturally. We're, we're called to live supernaturally. And, and what marks us is that we forgive. We work for reconciliation. That's who we are. Remember, God's not mad at you. And God will never, ever again be angry with you. Never, ever again be angry with you for what you do or don't do. He's reconciled you to himself. And he's given to you now a ministry of reconciliation. We're a unique community of people, unlike anybody else in the world. Christians and only Christians have this great gift and this great treasure. The third thing, that the Lord wants to remind us of is found in that great book, Hebrews, chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. The writer, now you have to read Hebrews through through the lenses of a Jewish 
person, Jewish context, because that's what's written to, it's written to Hebrew people. So he uses lots of things that, that Jewish people would understand and relate to, i.e. the high priest, the idea of a high priest. Gentiles don't have a high priest. We can relate to a high priest. But the Jews had a high priest. He said, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens. Now, the Jews, their high priest would go into the Holy of Holies in the um, temple one day a year on the Day of Atonement. They would pass through the veil. And this is an allusion to Christ not just going into a temporal Holy of Holies, but going and passing through the heavens to the Holy of Holies, the very presence of God. We have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Therefore, he says, let us hold firmly to the faith we possess. Let us hold on to Jesus and our faith and our confidence in him. He is a great high priest. He says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Typically, the high priest in Israel did not sympathize with the weakness of the people. It was just a religious function. But we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. We have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are yet without sin. In fact, he has been tempted far beyond what you and I would ever, ever experience in terms of temptation. Can you imagine 40 days and 40 nights fasting and praying with all of the forces of hell pitted against you? I barely go one day without beginning to dream of cheeseburgers. <laughs> I, mean, I, you know, I mean, you go through a day, you don't think about cheeseburgers, but you start fasting. Man, what comes to your mind? You can smell them sizzling on the grill. You can see the cheese oozing off. You think of French fries and a Coke, a chocolate shake. Oh, man, I can hardly wait till this fast is over. I'm going to make a beeline to in and out <laughs> Fat burger. <laughs> I'm going to party. I'm such a wimp, man. I have been tempted. Jesus was tempted far beyond what we can even think or imagine. See, we think, oh, Jesus tempted. He was God. Piece of cake. He could handle it. No, man, the, the hall, the, 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 the forces and the fury of hell was parade, uh, paraded against him. Satan himself attacked him. You and I just get some puny little fourth-rate demon trying to incite our flesh. Some little wussy demon who's confused himself. He doesn't know which end is up. Tempting us. You know, get Satan after us. So this is our high priest, and he's... He's opened the way. He's made the way. He didn't succumb to temptation. Therefore, verse 16, let us now, because of Jesus and what he has done, let us approach the throne of grace with fear, with timidity, with confidence. He's our forerunner. Let us now approach the throne of grace with confidence. So that we may receive what? Mercy. 
mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. How many found themselves short, bereft of energy and strength and wisdom and all the things that you need to live through this life and to do the kinds of things and to fulfill the ministry of reconciliation? God, I, I don't even want to forgive that person. I don't even want to see reconciliation. I want them to burn in hell if the truth be known, God. Now, that person needs some help, right? That person needs some, some grace to help them. They're in need, right? But you can go to the throne of grace and say, God, help me. Help me. Help me to forgive this person. Help me to be reconciled to this person. Help me to have wisdom to know how to reconcile this family over here. God's given me visibility of a family in our church that I, I must start meddling in their, in their marriage and their family. You know you're in trouble when a pastor starts meddling. But someone's got to step into their life. Someone's got to say something. Someone's got to get their attention. Someone's got to bring about some measure of reconciliation in that setting. And my prayer has been, Lord, show me, show me. So God just said, well, just simply go tell the husband that, that I've shown you some things and you're there to meddle. Simple. See, but I prayed, I asked. I asked for grace, I asked for wisdom, I asked for help. God showed me a way. So we can go with confidence to the throne of grace and we can obtain grace, strength, power, wisdom, help for our time of need. Now, Paul says much the same thing the writer of Hebrew does in, in uh, Ephesians chapter 3. He says much the, same, much the same thing. He says, in him, meaning Christ, and through faith in him, we may approach what? God with freedom and confidence. Does that sound vaguely familiar with the writer of Hebrews says? So the principle is true. We can come. You say, oh, but I can't come. I mean, I'm, I'm just, I, you just don't know me. You don't know how bad, you know. How no, no, come. Come. And just say, God, help me. God, you know me better than I know me. I need your help. Come. Come. Now, I had the tables arranged this way so that we could experience coming. So that each of us could get up, exert ourselves, and come to the table. And I, I'm correlating the Lord's table with the throne of grace. That we can come to this table and we can take these elements and we can. Now, now I want to encourage you. These elements, this little piece of matzah, this little cup of grape juice representing Jesus' body and blood. These are representative of Jesus in His sacrifice. Jesus is the expression of God's grace to us, is he not? So we can come and we can take these elements and we can remind ourselves, God, thank you that you're not mad at me for my sins. Thank you that you'll never be mad at me again. Thank you that Jesus took all your wrath that was due me. Thank you that you have reconciled me to yourself. Thank you that you have given me a ministry of reconciling, a ministry of healing.
and thank you that I can come to you and I can, I can receive grace, I can receive strength, I can receive wisdom, I can receive whatever it is I need so that I might live this life in ministry as you've called me and designed it. All because of what Jesus did.